everybody. My name is Ruth Jennings and this is my podcast, Are You Over It Yet? I lost my husband Andrew to cancer when he was only 32 and there's been so much about grief that has been surprising and unexpected for me. I started this podcast as a way of chatting to others about their story, their loved one, their grief journey and some of the twists and turns, highs and lows that we experience when someone very close to us dies. Today I have a great guest and a good friend. She sings with me in a close harmony group called the Swing Gals and in her day job she works as a psychotherapist and a counsellor mainly with children and young people and she helps them work through trauma and grief as well. She's creative, she's funny, she's a very fast walker, I remember doing a walk with her once, a very brave sea swimmer and an all-around lovely lady. This is Orla McKegney. Welcome Orla. Ruth, I wasn't expecting such a lovely introduction. (laughs) That's so sweet. I was thinking about all different things about you and was thinking that we went for a walk around Beaver, I probably didn't tell you this, at some point I think, you know, during one of the lockdowns and you walked so, so, so fast and I remember having conversation with you and thinking I can't show that I'm slightly out of breath because I'm so unfit just from walking with you. And I was not aware you you covered it up so well. Well that's good then. I appeared fitter than I actually was. And you're making me very aware of the fact that I don't want to miss the beautiful nature around by walking too fast. (laughs) Goodness. No just fit and healthy and walk miles isn't that right? Well I suppose if you don't use a gym it's kind of like a green gym going into Beaver Forest. Absolutely that's absolutely true. Mm. That's totally right exactly. You'll have to come with me again. I will come with you I'll again. I'll slow down slightly and you, and you can kind of increase slightly and we'll find a, a balance. A balance. Yeah. Good idea. That sounds a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Work on my fitness. Um, now Orla, I know you've lost a couple of people in your life but we're going to talk about a friend of yours today and I'm really interested in talking to someone about the loss of a friend because I think it's a, um, a forgotten loss a lot of the time. It's one of those things and it's maybe slightly more complex than someone within your family. But first of all, I'd really love to hear about your friend. She was called Una. Can you just tell me maybe where you met her first of all? Okay, so... I, this this was my bosom buddy in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. We I suppose that we grew up on Anna Green Gables, and and we would have affiliated like that. Uh, I'm uh, a we big didn't fan. Go to, we didn't go to primary school together, but uh, I met Una when I went to secondary school, and uh, and it was quite an immediate attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, she was incredibly funny and outgoing, and I just gravitated towards her. Yes. Um, I had gone to a boarding school in my first year, so I came into school in second year, and I felt a wee bit like a misfit. Okay. But we just connected, and we were in different classes, but then slowly, you know, by third, fourth year, the classes were, we were sharing classes, and then we became really, really, really close. And I I was thinking about it, and really, because her death was such a pivotal part of my life, and it was the first a tragedy really in my life I mean yeah. I'd lost grandparents and, and that was really sad but there was just something around your bosom buddy your best mm-hmm. friend who you could call or text at any time who knew you inside out back to front yeah. upside down yeah um I think especially in those teenage years because at that point in some ways your family for a little while anyway become less important and it all becomes about your friends doesn't it absolutely like, at that stage and they you know it's all it's all about being able to go out like we would have gone to clubland every weekend in our later <laughs> teens and, and she just was naturally very cool you know and <laughs> so I, I just shadowed her a lot in terms of how she danced and she was a bit of a mad 
magnet as well to the, okay. to the guys. She's okay. very, very beautiful. And uh, in some ways it feels like, you know, a wee bit of a, a shadow because it's been several years. I mean, she died when she was 34 um, and she had gone to university in, in England and mm-hmm. I had stayed in Northern Ireland. So we were, you know, although there was geographical, there was ge- geography between us, we mm-hmm. were still very, very close. But I suppose she had her university friends. I had my friends here at university here. So those teenage years were really, really important. And then when yeah. we moved away, you know, our connections developed further, you know, and yeah. our networks grew. But there was always that connection, a very, very, very strong connection between us. I want to hear more about that in a second. But will you just maybe you've got like a little funny story or a nice little story that you maybe tell during that time I've kind of put you on the spot here but do you have any great stories well, of were, that there were many moments <laughs> in fact we were synonymous in the school about it was like Laurel and Hardy there was Brilliant. always things going on like she she was highly intellectual so she was like in the top five okay. in the school so it was a bit of a paradoxical thing where she was a bit of a clown and then she got away with because of her because she was so bright she, she, would, she would get away with a lot but I, I'll never forget we were fifth year uh-huh. and um we thought about 16. 16, 16, 16 going on 17. And we both adored Deacon Blue. And Deacon Blue were coming to Belfast the for band. the first time ever to the Ulster Hall. And my sister was at university in Belfast and was in accommodation. And I had this idea, why don't we get the bus to Belfast during school, <laughs> go to this concert in the evening, stay over with my sister, put her uniforms back on, go back to school the next morning and nobody So was know. your school outside Belfast? Were you like... So we grew up in Tyrone and my school okay. was Ballygolly. Ballygolly so High for school. anyone that's not in Northern Ireland, that's like... Tyrone is what, an hour, an hour and a half away from Belfast? From Belfast, yeah. So you're yeah. going to get the bus in Go and stay over in. with your sister in yeah. Belfast. Okay. <laughs> so we, we thought this was a fantastic idea and we didn't really tell anybody except for one or two of the girls that we trusted. But it leaked that we'd gone away. So, th- so that day we had gone into school. We left at lunchtime. We just kind of dodged off, walked into town and got the bus, said nothing other than the fact that my parents thought I was staying with her parents and her parents thought I was staying. Oh, she was staying with my parents. And uh, so we went, we had an amazing time. I mean, <laughs> the thing with Una was, you, there was this kind of like, we just laughed all the time. It, yeah. it, it was quite manic probably, but you know, in terms of just the adventure and the excitement. So we, we got the yeah. bus and we went to the concert and I will never forget the concert. I mean, I'd never been to a live concert before and Deacon Blue, I mean, <laughs> they were phenomenal. It was their first time in Belfast. And I, I just not know remem- anything about Deacon Blue, Orla. <laughs> oh, I know. You, you have missed out, Ruth. I'll, I'll sing some of their songs in the forest when we're walking. Absolutely. Please do. Um, but... My I had I, my piano teacher is a music teacher in St Michael's in Enniskillen, which is another hour away from where our school was located. And uh, she had taken a busload of boys from St Michael's um, School in Enniskillen, so they were all suddenly at the back of the hall, and she spotted me. Oh, and this sounds like an episode of Dairy Girls. Very, very <laughs> much so. Now, the thing is, she's she's she was young and cool. Okay. And she was kind of amused to see me asking, you know, who are you with? And I yeah. said, well, Kathy's about my older sister. You know, we've got some supervision. Um, but I'll never forget being surrounded by all these St. Michael boys. It was really exciting. <laughs> and we were dancing with them. And, you know, but it, I, it was it was just a phenomenal evening. And yeah. just that, that calibre of music, you know, they, they were they were so wonderful like. And then we stayed over and we got takeaways and went back to the house and then we slipped into school the next morning and we thought we were doing okay and then we were both called out. 
Oh, and no. it got really quite serious. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. Um, we were facing suspensions. <gasps> and ironically, her father is the principal of the primary school in that area. And my father is the principal of a primary school in Fabletown, where I grew up. And they were both contacted. Oh and it got goodness. super, super serious about what could have happened, the implications of letting the young people away. So we went home <laughs> and my father was brilliant. He said, oh, well, that was a very creative thing to do. <laughs> well done, was the concert good? I couldn't believe, I, I thought he would really yeah. be upset and annoyed, but he actually took it really well. Yeah. And he does like Deacon Blue, so he was really intrigued <laughs> to find out what the concert was like. Una's father didn't take it so well because okay. I mean, he's such a lovely, lovely man. But I think he was quite upset about it. And obviously because there's a closer correlation between the primary school and the secondary school in that yes. local area. Looked um, bad or on an him. affiliation, I should yeah. say. So um, Una came in the next day. Well, there was no texting in those days, but we weren't allowed to call each other for a couple of weeks after that. Um, but we laugh at it now. And the only reason why the school found out about it was one of the girls that I that we told one of the boys in our year, you know, you just never got on with the boys. Yes. Well, this one didn't like me in particular. We we were doing history together and uh, he heard, he overheard a conversation and went straight to he the He told on you. He told the history teacher because I hadn't appeared in the afternoon. And because I was usually in school musicals, I think there was a school musical going on at the time. They just assumed you were there. They assumed I was there. So it, it did get pretty serious. Now, fortunately, the our dads were really quite, you know, respectful. Yeah, well known in the community. Really apologetic. So we did go back to school. I think we went home that, that day early and then we went back the next day. But, you know, people were talking about us for a couple of weeks. And obviously a lot of young people thought it was a super cool thing to do. But I mean, it was very cool. If I'm totally honest, I skived off every Wednesday afternoon to go and meet Andrew for the last two years of my schooling. Now, I say I skived off. It was games. <laughs> And in, in secondary school, I did music for games. So I got quite clever at, I did a prefect duty and I would wait until the teacher came in for, signed my board. Then I would give it to a friend and I would walk past the music department, just wave in. So they thought that I was there, assumed that I went downstairs to practice, secretly went out, met Andrew, went for lunch and uh, then came back the last five minutes and came up. <laughs> From from the downstairs that looked like I'd been there that whole time. Yes, yeah, it, it was bad and I got away with it for two I years. I didn't think you had that in you, right? I know, I know. It was quite bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> I actually don't think that Andrew knew that I was skiving school actually either. I think he just thought I had the afternoon off, which is, which is quite what funny. What you actually. will do for love though. Really? I know. Um, now tell me, Orla, I have a feeling, you've told me before, but I'm not sure, that it was quite sudden with Una. Is that correct? She had something wrong, but that her death was quite sudden. Will you yeah. tell me about the situation surrounding her death and, and how that came about? At school, she had always not been well. She had uh, Crohn's. Yes, okay. And she lived with that, but she would have had periods where she just was quite sick. Yes. That... Uh, deteriorated into colitis and she lived with colitis for quite a few years sort of symptoms with that well she would have certain foods would have aggravated it so she would yeah. have had to avoid a lot of starchy foods yeah. and a lot of fibrous foods and she would have been on white breads and very okay. clean foods um and then she when the ulceration got worse in her colon she got a colostomy bag mm -hmm. um and so she had that for a couple of years and then that Sadly, then she got uh, bowel cancer. 
Right, okay. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't realised that it turned into cancer. Yeah. So it, it and that happened over a period of a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she she had moved to Manchester and she got married and she lived with a condition for quite a long time. But I remember, um, you know, we would have been in contact and it got pretty bad. And mm-hmm. we were, she, she invited me over and... I knew this was probably going to be the last time that I saw her, you know, um, like I would have seen her a lot when she was home and mm-hmm. I would have gone over to visit her. But and I'll never forget because I went to the airport knowing that this was possibly going to yeah. be the last time because it, it was implicitly it, it was never said, you know, yes. and even that that time in hospital when I did see her, she she was in denial of the fact she was dying and okay. she was like, they're all fussing around. Why are they fussing? Mm-hmm. I just need to, I just want to go home, you know. Mm-hmm. But I knew that she didn't think she was dying and she was literally, you know, I think it was about maybe two or three days later that her, her lung collapsed then and that was the process of starting to die. But when uh, she was in the hospital, I'll never forget, coming to the airport in Belfast to fly over to Manchester, Kevin McLeod from Grand Designs okay. was, was sharing the... And the and we started chatting oh, wow. and he was asking me why I was going to Manchester and I was explaining about, well, I have a really fr- a good friend who's critically ill and uh, and he, he he really was genuinely interested mm-hmm. and asked me a lot. And then he started talking about his wife dying of cancer. Right. Okay. And so we had this very meaningful conversation. So I've always, when I see him now on TV, I think yeah. fondly of him and that time. Um, but in some ways, I was really quite manically excited that I'd seen him. And in some ways, I was buffering the blow then, thinking, this is amazing, you know. Yes. Kim. But the reality was it was a very, very difficult time. And when I went to see her in the hospital, I mean, she had three amazing sisters. She has three amazing sisters and and her mom and dad and her brother. But her mom and dad were stoic and phenomenal the mm-hmm. whole way through that. And they were so lovely. They were gorgeous parents and they are gorgeous parents, but I would have seen a lot of them, obviously, because like, we were doing sleepovers mm-hmm. and they had a caravan and mm-hmm. I would have stayed there a lot. Yeah, they were um, family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so there was a really lovely connection, um, but they were really, I mean, it was just so difficult towards the end. Her parents had moved over. They were there for quite a few months before she died. Um, and it was lovely to see her in the hospital, but again... It was hard because I couldn't say goodbye to her because I knew she wasn't wanting. She wasn't ready for that. She wasn't ready for and that. And did you say she was married as well? She was married to Alf and Alf has since then remarried and um, and they they had a, a child together um, and, and obviously she's now in her teens and Alf I think has another child I'm not in contact with, with him. What, um, what age was the little girl then? The, Ella it go- would yeah. have been around six. Six when Una died. Okay, so she was little. She was little, yeah. And was Una kind of aware, I mean, I think as a, you know, as a mother, was she sort of aware at all that she was likely, you know, that she wasn't going to be there? Was she wanting to put anything in place or was it just total denial? I, from my perspective, it was, it was denial. Okay. But, you know, maybe she spoke to her sisters about it because they were very protective toward the end as well. They didn't want to exhaust her. They didn't want her to get over emotional. Mm-hmm. I don't think there were very many friends. Some of her Manchester friends got to say goodbye to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think anybody else from Belfast or yes, Northern Ireland got to you. say goodbye to her. Did um, you feel you got the opportunity to say things that you wanted to say? No. no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. I'm like... Um, I don't mind talking, you know, I suppose I don't want to go off on a tangent, but 
you know, even her wedding, she hadn't been well. And I remember being at her wedding with another friend from here. And I always knew that there was a part of her that was in, that was coping with a very, very serious condition and that it was very hard for her. It was very hard to gauge with her and, mm-hmm. you know, really whether I could speak to her about how serious her condition was and what she was facing as a consequence of that. It, I it think just... it's a very difficult fine line between because you want to continue to live life. And I remember Andrew used to get really annoyed with me because he'd say, you just talk about cancer all the time <laughs> for a little while, especially after he was diagnosed. And he would just say, can you just not mention it? But I was thinking about, you know, what treatment could we try or what could we do or, you know, and I was wanting to do that. And he just wanted to get on and kind of live his life. And at that stage, I always thought, was it, was there a level of denial or was it literally just like, well, it's not gonna make any difference. So I'd rather just continue to live. Um, And maybe it was a bit of both, you know, and yeah, I think sometimes then it's difficult because you have things that you want to say. And is there any, is there anything that they want to say back? And they almost, you don't feel like you can say it, which is difficult then to live with after. And it's funny because I think, you know, in terms of those times in your life, you, you have a certain relationship with your friends from primary and secondary school that are that are lifelong. Yeah. And then as you're maturing and you've got your university friends mm-hmm. and then you find your partner, there are relationships that you're not really that aware of and the dynamics you're not aware yeah. of. And, you know, I could never really work out who she did talk to about that in terms of French friend networks, but it didn't. And I know geographically because we were living far apart, maybe that was part of it. And, you know, there was an email or texting at that point. But, uh, but I, I, I I don't know, something around that maybe if she named that with me, that it it almost made it quite definite that she wouldn't be around as a, as a friend. Mm -hmm. But I felt as well that, you know, over those years, I changed in lots of ways. You know, I think that, I I was obviously more in, well, I was interested. I was working in the arts. I was very mm-hmm. busy and consumed by that. And uh, and she was an optician. And, okay. uh, and I suppose there were things that obviously as we grow, we change and we evolve. And there were things that were different about us. But we never we never had arguments or anything. But I suppose mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to work out in my mind, you know, why she didn't want to speak about it. But I think it was more fear of death and, yes. and the enormity of losing her 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 relationship with her beautiful daughter mm-hmm. and her husband. I mean, it was just too much. Yeah. And and her family are incredibly close. They're like her biological family, they're they're and they're a gorgeous family. So it's just the consequence of all of that, I think, was just too much for her mind at the age of 34. It's just to, to try and to try and fathom and process. With. And I suppose in that time as well, it was 2006. It just was a different time. I know the it's not that long away in a way, but abs- exactly. Death yeah, totally. was not really spoken about. And we, we both came up from very traditional families and even showing emotion wasn't necessarily that you know, invited or, you know, it just wasn't the norm at that mm-hmm. time to, and I suppose because we were, we'd grown up in Northern Ireland and it was about, you know, trying to keep a lid on things yes. and keep going and just, you know, be a success, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of job and This is relationships. like leading really easily now for me, Orla, with what you're saying there. So did you then feel when she did die that you could go on and talk, talk about it with people? Like, you know, for instance, was her funeral in Belfast? Was it one of those things where you could say, I'm going to the funeral of a friend and and then sort of talk about her? Or did it just feel like after she died, you just kind of had to get on with life? 
Well, I would say that for the first couple of years, like the funeral was absolutely beautiful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I remember I I sang a psalm, not very well, but there were were several other people. You know, there was another girl in our class who was a beautiful singer and a musician and she played. And it was a very, really, really moving and and connected funeral. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our school friends were there. Um, Now, I wouldn't have seen, Anuna probably wouldn't have been in close contact with many of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Marie was one friend who she would have been very close contact with. But... That was a shock, I think, for a lot of the uh, our age group in the yeah. area because I don't think they were aware of how oh, serious her condition had got, um, and the and the service was really really beautiful. And I just remember distinctly because my mom, <laughs> the things you remember, my mom had bought this lovely long, really warm coat in Marks and Spencers, and Celine, her mum was going to be cold because it was it was a time of, you know, it was February and it was cold mm. when it came to the funeral. And uh, and I thought it would be good. Celine wore mommy's coat and Celine really appreciated having. So I've always remembered yeah. that. <laughs> and I think sometimes you remember the lighter parts as opposed to yeah. the very, very difficult parts. But, you know, the burial was just very, and it was surreal just seeing your friend, you know, mm. leave and, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously Prior to the funeral, her body had been flown over and, yeah, it hadn't been an open coffin. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were there were parts that were, you were putting the pieces together, really, mm-hmm. in terms of in your mind how she was when she had died. Because I, I didn't have a picture of her when mm-hmm. she died. But the room where her coffin was was beautiful in the pictures. I mean, she's incredibly photogenic and so beautiful. Like, yes. I think I relayed that to you earlier, just about anywhere. We, like, even our formal and if we were out... I mean, she was a, she she just got a lot of attention. She yes. had that kind of movie star look about her, you yeah. know. She was so beautiful, but um, so in some ways, to answer your question more directly, yes, there was a lot of support after the after the funeral, and there would have been times when we would have got together, and and that has slowly dissipated somewhat. And you know, I I have one friend from that time, Marie, that I would still see. But because I'm now have my life in Belfast, I actually don't really see that many other of my peers in Ballygolly. Um yeah, and 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 that's hard, you mm-hmm. know, but I and I do think on some level there's always been a protective shield because of having to really face the consequence of her not being there. It was yeah. convenient that she'd been living in Manchester. It was convenient as well that I could dip in and see her family or see fr- friends mm-hmm. when I wanted to. But I think it was quite overwhelming as well. I really do. I, I, I don't think, well, I don't think I was prepared for death, really, mm-hmm. in terms of processing, maybe losing somebody of my age and so directly connected to me because grandparents, I feel, are a wee bit removed. They do, 100%. It's just and I don't think, unless it happens, I don't actually think you do really get it (laughs) you know I think you imagine what it might be like but I don't think you actually really do understand it unless it's it's happened to you do you think it sort of can has affected your life and how you have felt about living and you know about the fact that life is short and life is precious in a way that you hadn't thought about before so much so I mean I could, get, I could, I'm feeling myself getting emotional again because I think it has, it impacted every part of my life. It really, really did, in the sense of, you know, I questioned everything. Yeah. <laughs> what was the purpose of of it all? What happened? Where was Una? What happens? Is there afterlife? Um, you know, and and I think really there was something for me around everything that I do. I have to really appreciate and and find fulfillment in. Mm-hmm. And it did. It was quite pivotal then in decisions in terms of what I would do as a job, but also 
that I, I just couldn't do frivolity. <laughs> I yes. became, I've actually become quite a, from somebody who was cl- a clown and laughing a lot, you know, <laughs> I was constantly uh, up to mischief at school. I do feel there's there's a depth to me now that I, that has 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 come and evolved mm-hmm. over that time since Una died. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, you know, I, I, you know, I think of you, Ruth, and I, you know, I think of Una's parents, like how difficult that must be, you know, because it's bloody hard f- for me, you yeah. know, and I've got that wee bit of a, a removal from the family, you know, mm-hmm. but for for her siblings and her parents, they, they, they've been quite remarkable. I'm, I'm kind of moving again to images, but I, I'll never forget them at the funeral. And I just saw them walking in and just how strong they were the whole way through yeah. the service. I mean, I just, it was just unbelievably incredible that mm-hmm. they just held it together so strongly. And, you know, and there's so much love in that family. And and I would like to reach out to them, but sometimes yeah. I find it too painful too as well, yeah. currently. Um, yeah. It's a funny one, actually, because I remember, um, <laughs> anyway, I probably shouldn't say who it is, somebody saying about when um, Andrew was in the hospice and a relatively close family member hadn't wanted to come in to see him because they said that it would just upset them too much and was sort of discussed amongst us that we were sort of irritated by that because we were like, but we have to do it. <laughs> we have no choice. And yet with perspective, I can understand that better because actually that person, they then wanted to keep a nice memory of Andrea. And if they could keep that, I actually can understand that now. And I suspect when you see the family or her family, it must be kind of strange because it's not the same relationship as it used to be. You know, it's, that's your friend's family and now it just becomes a different, it's, it's a strange thing. It's different, isn't it? It's not. And I also feel, I don't know how this is or how this connects to you. And this is not about anybody else's, it's about me. Mm -hmm. When I went into Una's parents' house, I couldn't help but feel a tremendous amount of great um, guilt that I was still alive and their daughter had died. And I find that really intolerable, you know, because they always saw me with Una. Um, yeah. And it just seemed, again, that was very unfair. Really, nothing in a way. made yeah. sense after that. And, you know, for quite And that's a, not fair that you feel that, but that's... I have always mm-hmm. had a feeling of why, why was it her and not me. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Survivor's guilt. Survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. And then I guess, you know, I, I you see it's funny because you kind of feel like, oh, but I can't compare to your level of grief because it was so different and it was Well, enormous. this is one of the reasons that I wanted to speak to someone who's a friend, actually, because <clears throat> I was saying this with a sibling is sort of similar, a grown up sibling. But I think a friendship is one of those griefs that's often forgotten about. Um, and I think sometimes you can be closer to your friends than even you are to your family. And so that's partly why I wanted to, to speak to someone who'd lost a really close friend and wondered, do you feel you, you know, at this point, do you say to people, you know, you lost a close friend or does it just feel like <laughs> your grief is too lowly to kind of talk about that? Uh, I would say that I, I talk about Una, mm-hmm. definitely. I would talk to, about Una to my current friends mm-hmm. and I would, you know, reminisce if yes. I'm with school friends. Mm-hmm. I, I I have seen her family on occasions um, and they're always warm and inviting and mm-hmm. that's really wonderful. But I, ha- I haven't seen them now for mm-hmm. about three or four years. Um, but I, 
I think there's a validity in my grief mm-hmm. um, and I try not to compare it because That's I exactly feel brilliant. it's so easy to compare yeah. and, and undermine what you feel. Exactly. But I think there is a place for it at different, when you're going through different phases of your life. I mean, mm-hmm. that was a pivotal time mm-hmm. really to witness my best friend who had been quite ill to, to deteriorate so much and then to die. So and, and that, that's a time when we're all in that sort of position of trying to make sense of life and get yeah. a place in life. And for somebody that, you know, who, who'd been like your bosom buddy not to be there, you know, it, it, it kind of felt something had been really wrenched out, out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I do think there that it's important to honour that. But also when you feel it, you know, yeah, it's 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 hard. Yeah, yeah. I think six years after Una passed away, your mom died. Um, and I'm just wondering how it was when when your mom died. Did you feel like you were starting a totally new grief? I'm always interested in this question. A totally new grief. Or did it feel like you almost had some sort of preparation of what grief was like having lost a friend? Or oh, that's really wonderful that you asked me that because <laughs> it really... My answer really makes sense to me now. Um, I was really present for my mum. Okay. She she had a diagnosis of ovarian cancer and she had really about a year after she found out. And it was the most exquisite time. I mean, it was really awful, but I was able to fully be with her. Mm-hmm. And and I was, I was able to talk more about death. And, yes. And I was really present to her as she died. Yeah. And it, that I I feel was preparation. Una's death was preparation because it was, I hadn't been able to to name or put in words to her what I was feeling. And I don't know if I would have been ready to, but certainly when mum, like literally before she went unconscious and died, I was in the room with her and, um, and I, and she and and I knew this was the end, mm-hmm. and she spoke, and we chatted, and and I just felt so privileged. Like you know, there was a divine timing in that. Yes, you now work as a counsellor and and with the young people, yeah. and I imagine help them probably not just with grief, but grief being one of the things. And you're talking about all the different ways there, you know, um, moving your body and meditation and um, all the different things that you suggested maybe helped you dance and um, mm-hmm. drama. And is that the kind of thing then you do in your work? How, how has that helped you, um, you know, having Una and your mom and trying to work through that journey yourself helped you help other people? And well, has it helped you help other people? Uh, I, I, I guess it has. Mm-hmm. I suppose, if anything, it provides an opportunity. For, it's something around a space that's that's a held space and a safe space. I, I feel sometimes intuitively, particularly with young people, they know whether you can gauge their feeling or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that your, your own personal journey informs how you work. And yes. I think that, you know, in terms of whether we call it a richness or a depth that has come into my life through my own experiences, because I have lost other friends, good good friends mm-hmm. over the years, many good friends over mm-hmm. the years. Um, and, and I suppose that can, that would inform the practice. Um, and in terms of interventions, yes, you know, my training was in using drama therapeutically, um, but I've done lots of other training since then. But 
there is something really um, important about those languages for young people as well, mm -hmm. because obviously they can't articulate fully what they feel or they're, they can be unaware or in denial. So so sometimes like sand tray or any form of projective play can really help them to express, communicate what's going on without them having to name it or, you know, confront it in such a an obvious way. Mm -hmm. Um and of course, it's it's always a privilege. I mean, like, you know, it's a privilege to work through stuff, if you want to say stuff, with young people. Um, but I but I think that my yeah my my experiences of of losing a friend at such young at a young age mm -hmm. has, has, has definitely influenced my decisions as to what to do in mm -hmm. terms of career. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that your whole life might have been different mm. had this not happened. Absolutely. Even though I'm sure you'd preferred it didn't. It's sort of interesting that one person dying has such a ripple effect on so many. Um, so many secondary losses and secondary changes from that. And it's funny because even in terms of, you know, I'd been in a theatre company for quite a few years and that's, I just thought, you know, I was directing and acting and I just thought, well, that's my life. And, mm -hmm. and I just found it really hard to do it. Yeah. After something about the reality of the feeling, you just, it, 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 it just... It just didn't feel right to mm -hmm. pursue that type of career any longer. Just not important enough or something? Is that... And I don't want to in any way belittle. I yeah, well, mean, that's what I did for craft, years, so it doesn't... <laughs> my gosh, it's so it's so technical and, and so challenging. But I think it just didn't satisfy me. And I think that's why I went more into community arts and then did a psychotherapy training. I just yeah. needed to know that that I could be met with the creative outlets in some capacity. Yeah. And that seemed to be the the right journey for me then. Who knows if anything is predetermined, but I guess I had the courage to be honest with myself and make decisions that obviously I think created more buoyancy for me emotionally as well yeah. as providing a, a career. Yeah. Is there anything anyone ha did for you after Una died that was very helpful or said anything very helpful or... Conversely, very unhelpful did or said something very unhelpful. I, I, I became quite interested in Buddhism and yoga okay. after Una died. And I then trained as a yoga teacher. And that, I've gone to various um, different instructors, but uh, I went and did a year with a monk oh, <laughs> on wow. yoga philosophy. And and. I I he I find him very wise uh -huh. and and it really helped me to think about the energetic part of being human and and how we're part of everything. Mm -hmm. And I suppose maybe in some ways I'm just I felt more that I could let go a little bit and trust that you know this life has got so much more going on in terms of uh, sophistication that we we don't know and you know I suppose in some ways if if you want to call it a faith I feel that I have more meaning mm -hmm. and faith um since then so I I that's where I went more in terms of of getting answers or or finding comfort um mm -hmm. and possibly I wanted I, I, there was something more I wanted something more exact and less flowery and people did say things to me over the years but I didn't really <laughs> Like I, I just, it wasn't that it was cliche, but I, I kind of felt, well, that's, I kind of know that. Or there was yeah. something, I, I, it was almost like I was being a, do, wanting to do more detective work. I, I didn't have any faith prior yeah. to that. I didn't really believe in, in any sort of bigger 
divine support, God, whatever, you know. And I think that my journey into that area of spiritual practice started after Una died. And Mm -hmm. and, and particularly this monk had been really helpful at the time. Mm -hmm. What do you think you would do to help or what would you say to someone who had just lost someone? I would would say, say I would say very little. Okay. Because I feel that I would be more comfortable being with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would want them to know, possibly without the need for many words, that I'm available for mm-hmm. them. Um, and I suppose maybe it's kind of like a felt sense that, you know, I, I, I can identify and I know your grief on some level. And yeah. If you would like to talk about your grief, I'm here. Yeah. I, I sometimes feel I don't want to plaster something over or 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 just speak words to fill space or say what they need. Because I think maybe something around how attuned we are to listening and, and what people what people say in response to what we what we think or how we're feeling. And sometimes it just doesn't help. Yes. A lot of the time it doesn't seem to help. So it's something I'm not sure if I'm making sense, but I, I can't say what I would say. But when I'm with that person and I'm I'm kind of sensing how they are and what's coming up for me, I would hope that in that attunement that I would say something that might be supportive or, or wise to them. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't I couldn't tell you what that might be. <laughs> would you give any advice? What would you say? No, this doesn't actually make sense. No, I'm going to ignore that question. <laughs> Because it's it's back to the, you know, there's so much written about grief and, you know, even the Kubler-Ross phases of death, you know, and it's like, oh, I'm, which stage am I in? And it just, I'm just not, it's, it's, it's formulaic in that sense. And yes, there's a validity and a relevance and a map for people, which Mm -hmm. is really, really important. But that person is an individual and we're all, we've all got the jigsaws of our lives and different things hurt us, upset us, annoy us. And grief is the same as a dance that we're all in through life. And Mm -hmm. I suppose it's just something around honouring where people are at and how do we know what to say? Mm -hmm. But hopefully in that moment of encounter, when you're really with that person, you can trust that whatever you say will be what they need to hear or that in some way will, will support them. Would you think it's better to say something than nothing, though? I'm just thinking of that song, uh, is it Take That, You Say It Best When You Say Nothing At All? Yeah. I hate to say that, but I do remember thinking, gosh, that's a really, really important line. <laughs> it's so interesting. I have to, I've asked this question to lots of people, and I always really hated when people ignored it or said nothing. Mm-hmm. I find that really difficult when people said nothing. They didn't need to say a lot. I didn't feel the need, like I was happy if they just said, oh, I'm really sorry or I'm sad to hear about Andrew. But I did have people just pretend it never happened, just sort of not not mention it. And that really annoyed me. <laughs> um, uh, some people in particular who still to this day, it's like it never happened, never, just never acknowledged it. Um, so, but I've spoken to other people who think that's, that's fair enough and actually sometimes it's better to be quiet so that's why I was interested to hear and it's funny because that's a different agenda behind the quietness isn't it it's well it's an awkwardness yeah 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 which maybe is I guess that's a different thing yeah Yeah. um and I think sometimes it's very hard to support someone grieving actually because I don't know that there is always a right thing I think sometimes people like something different and Mm -hmm. you know for some people it's very helpful if you say well I believe they're in heaven now and for other people they I don't don't have any faith they're in Mm -hmm. heaven so that's actually just really annoying Mm -hmm. to me or you know whatever Mm -hmm. um 
all I ask, this is my final question, okay. always on my podcast. Um, what um, would you take onto the island? No. <laughs> <laughs> you can certainly tell me what you take onto the island, but no, that's not the that's not the final question. Tell me what you take onto the island since you oh said it. Oh my goodness, you're putting me under pressure. Probably, uh, well, I would hope that there would be lots of fruits growing on the island, so I wouldn't need to take them. <laughs> Probably a juicer. No, that's that's a silly thing to take on the island. Actually, this is true. I, these people get lots of time to think about it before they go on to the shows. <laughs> well, I'll ask you the actual final question of my podcast then, which is um, because someone asked it to me and it sort of annoyed me at the time, so... Are you over it yet? That's a really bad question. I don't like that question at all. Um, over it? I mean, what does that really mean? I suppose I would say that it has definitely informed my life. And I've, I know I've said that in the interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really... It's almost like, are you competing with life to get over things? Mm-hmm. Are you, is that a hurdle that you get over? Um, certainly not. If anything, it's just, well, it's certainly, you know, I can't say it's a gift because it wasn't a gift, but it's definitely been a richness uh, in terms of how it has impacted my life. Um, and I wouldn't want it any other way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not, I, in some ways I don't mean that, to, I, I want her to hear, but I just mean I wouldn't, I don't, I don't battle on. I don't see it as something I have to get over. If 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 feeling comes up, I feel it, mm-hmm. and I and I can talk to people that I that I know are safe people to talk to about how I feel. Um, so I, I I suppose I was equating to dance earlier on. I don't see anything as in terms of this grief as a hurdle to get over. And again, I'm using oh my god, I feel really bad because my grief, obviously, compared to other people's grief, is possibly not worthy. But uh, I. No, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm making sense now, but um, it's not a hurdle. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have really enjoyed chatting to you and I actually think you'll be very helpful for other people listening to. I think it's been very insightful and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you so much oh, for, for me, being so open and so honest. And actually you said you were very serious nowadays, but I actually think you're still very funny. Still make me laugh <laughs> <Okay>. a lot. <laughs> well, that's good to know. And I will think about the island. Maybe we can take our three things to Beaver Forest. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay. Okay.